We're going to be starting on Sunday mornings just a series moving through the book of Galatians. On Wednesday nights, we're still going through the Bible and going through the Psalms, a few Psalms a week, but we're starting a new series on Sunday morning in the book, an in-depth study kind of in the book of Galatians. And so um, I've been looking forward to this as I've prayed about, you know, what to share, and uh, there's just great stuff in the book of Galatians. Galatians is the favorite book of a whole lot of people. Martin Luther, for one, said that it was by far his favorite book of the Bible, uh, as did John Wesley and so many others. Galatians is an interesting letter from Paul. Paul wrote a lot of, you know, he wrote, I believe, 14 books of, of the New Testament. Most all of his letters were addressed to a specific church. But the book of Galatians, uniquely of all the letters of Paul, was addressed to a group of churches, as you see in there in verse 2, to the churches of Galatia. There wasn't one church in Galatia. Galatia is the area of there in, uh, you know, West Asia. Kind of, well, north of Israel, keep going north of Iran. It's up there where present-day Armenia and Turkey are. They're around the Black Sea. And it was an area, and Paul had established several churches up there, we believe, during his uh, first missionary journey. He wrote this letter People disagree. Some people say it was during his second missionary journey, which would put it around 54 A.D. Others think his third missionary journey, which would make it a little later, like 57 A.D. But he was writing a letter to these churches because these churches had been established, but he, he received a word that they were leaving the truth of the gospel and that they were beginning to mix legalism and the law and Judaism in as a requirement to be a Christian. Now, they were Gentiles for the most part. The Galatians, the, the word Galatia comes from Gaul, which is, they were originally from Gaul or over there by France and Germany. These were Celtic people, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Asians, who had, who had, during the time of the Roman Empire, had moved across here to this area, conquered it, and they liked it and wanted to stay there. Their reputation always was... Well, it makes this book relevant to us because the reputation they had was of people who were very finicky. They kind of bounced from one thing to another, one belief to another. They had received the gospel, understood the truth of the gospel, and yet they got over it. They started to think, there's got to be something more. There must be something else that we can do. And so these Judaizers came in and convinced them that Paul was teaching a second-class Christianity. That what Paul was doing was giving this kind of Gentile, watered-down version of the gospel. But hey, if you want to be a real Christian, and you really want to do it right, you need to become a Jew and a Christian. You need to get circumcised and conform with all the elements of the law. And these people heard it and go, sounds good. I mean, we want everything. There are so many people who, when they come to the Lord, the gospel is so simple but then others come in and convince them that, oh, there's more to it than that. There's something else, some other deeper teaching that you need to understand, some greater knowledge that goes beyond just the gospel. And let's face it, when we're a new Christian, we want everything that there is to God. And so we're kind of sitting ducks as we're going, oh, there must be something more. And somebody goes, yep, there is something more. You need to accept the gospel, and you also need to join our church. 
You also need to dress in this way, conduct yourself in this way, follow these set of rules. And basically what the book of Galatians does is it lays out in a, in a passionate and argumentative form what the gospel really is and that it's all of God, that it's not of us, and that more than anything, it's not man-made. And the Galatians are encouraged to turn away from anything that's a man-made version of the gospel, to not add to the gospel, Judaism or anything else. Now, often people talk about Galatians as, as setting the law and grace as opposed to each other, but it's not even so much that. See, the law, the Old Testament law, was good, and Paul makes that clear. But the purpose of the law, as we will see as we study through this book, was to allow people to realize what they can't do. The children of Israel, when the law was given and read by Moses, they said, sounds good to us, great, we'll do it. They should have said, what, all those rules? How in the world could we ever do this? And that's the critical difference between responding to the law in a way that says, yeah, no problem, and responding to the law in a way that says, oh man, we're in trouble, we need help. And then turning to, to the one who died for us to give us that help. But really, for us, and by application, the book of Galatians applies to us because it sets off the difference between a God-directed and a God-designed faith and grace and a religion that's formed by people. The problem with the law was not only did the children of Israel think they could obey it, but they even made it more complicated. They even came in and added tons of burden to the law that wasn't really there in the law. And, and so it became a man-made interpretation of the law. And this is a reminder to us as we go through the scriptures how important it is that we don't do that. The Bible has enough. The truth is enough for us. We don't need to take artificial systems and apply them to the word, no matter how good the system might be. We don't want to read the word with our interpretive matrix over it. But we want to receive simply what God is telling us because it's not man-made, the gospel isn't. It's all from God. And if we create a religion, it will cause us to, as he says later in the book, to even fall from grace. And so, very relevant to us because I believe that we, as all people of all time, we are prone to designing our own religion. We're prone to creating a set of rules and living by them and holding other people to them. See, the deal with legalism, there are kind of two sides to the coin of legalism. It starts out desiring to do the right thing. And who wouldn't say, what must I do? What shall I do now? That's a natural response. And the Bible has a lot to tell us about what we ought to do and guides for ethics and obedience and things like that. But what happens is we start to follow rules and then a problem sets in because I can't even follow my own rules. Even when I design my own religion, I fail at it and I become frustrated. Or I decide and convince myself really that I'm doing pretty good because I design my own designer religion that makes me look better than other people. Two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, people who are saying, oh man, I'm so defeated. I feel like such a loser. I don't measure up. There's something wrong with me. Help, I need some other tips. I need a new book. I need another seminar. I need some 
fresh work. I need something to happen because I'm coming up short. And there are some people who are laboring under that kind of a burden, and the book of Galatians makes it clear, you're fine. God has done it. You don't have to labor under that. Don't let man-made religion cause you to feel like a failure. But at the same time, the other side of that coin of legalism is our tendency to decide to live by rules, and we find people who are doing worse than we are. We find people who are failing in areas where we've achieved success, and then we start to point our fingers and judge. We decide that the basic model of a Christian is me. It's what I am. And so things that give me a problem, oh, those aren't a big deal. Things that I just fail at regularly, those aren't a big deal. But man, when I have got the victory, oh, you better also. Because I can take my set of rules and put them on you and say, you know, you don't dress the way that I think you ought to dress because you don't dress like me. And you say things that I wouldn't say. You do things that I wouldn't do. And this is something that is in us as human beings because of the fall. It's this tendency to try to live by rules. It was a part of what motivated Eve, really, as the serpent was tempting her and telling her, hey, you'll know right and wrong. You'll be like God. See, you'll be right. You'll be able to brand other people as wrong. And that's a part of the worldly system. It's a part of not just Christianity when it's been polluted by the law, but it's a part of what we do naturally with or without Christianity. We set up rules, arbitrary human-created rules, and then we judge others or we condemn ourselves one way or the other. Take it one way or the other. And so Paul is here addressing this phenomenon in the book of Galatians. Galatians is one of the books in which the, the scripture over in Habakkuk chapter 2, where Habakkuk says, the just shall live by faith. It's also taught and, and, and mentioned in the book of Romans by Paul. It's mentioned here in Galatians by Paul. And it's also mentioned in the book of Hebrews. And that's one of the reasons why I believe Hebrews was written by Paul. This truth, the just shall live by faith. And as we look at the book of Galatians, we'll see how we're we supposed to live. And what does it mean to live by faith? And what does it mean to accept what God gives us as being sufficient and not feeling that we need to earn it, that we need to add to it, that we need to create some overarching system that will help us in order to be the kind of people that will be better than other people, to deliver us really from the burden of the rules and of the law. See, there are two different ways of functioning, even within God's law and His truth. We can feel that, that God's Word is something that stifles us and forces us to be a certain way, or we can allow that work of the Spirit in our lives by faith, because of His grace, whereby He just naturally causes us to settle into the life that He has designed for us, not feeling condemned because He took our sins on Himself. Not being judgmental because we understand it's not us. We're not the ones who do it. Over in Hawaii last week, they have a really annoying habit. They drive, when they drive everywhere, they drive like the speed limit. Even sometimes five miles under the speed limit. Drives you crazy when you're first there. It's like you're going, oh, cars are backed up, and you're right on somebody's bumper thinking they're going to get the clue, and, and I'm going, I can't believe it. They're driving 45 in a 45, and 
you know, over here, we're used to driving faster. But after you're there for a few days, you adjust to it. And you go, you know what? This doesn't have to be a burden. I'm not in a hurry. There's no reason why I have to constantly stress myself out. And by the end of a week in Hawaii, you're just backing off and enjoying turning on the little Hawaiian music and just relaxing and going, you know what? It's not so bad driving the speed limit. You come back here, you get in your car, you go to drive somewhere, and people are on your bumper honking. Okay, I'm back in California. I'll get with the program. But in a way, that's a picture of the difference between living a life of legalism where you have these rules that are imposed on you and living a life of faith where God just does a work in your heart and it doesn't seem tough anymore. It doesn't seem hard. So the book of Galatians, let's begin reading. And verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul writing a letter, it's compared to his other introductions, it's rather terse, I think. He doesn't pray for them. He doesn't thank God for anything about them. He doesn't commend them for anything. He gives an overall introduction that lays the foundation for the argument that he's going to present to them in the rest of the book. And he almost can't wait to get down to what's really happening and what he really needs to address. Because not only he's hearing of their legalism, but he's also hearing that there are people there who are telling things about Paul that aren't true, attacking his apostleship, saying he's just the rinky-dink Gentile apostle. And boy, if you really want the real stuff, you need to go to Peter and to James and the pillars of the church. And so Paul is being forced to defend himself, even though he's the one who probably planted these churches. But moreover, he sees them falling into something that will destroy the church. And they need to understand God's grace. And they need to understand what it is to live by faith. And he's very concerned for them. It's a very passionate book. The book of Romans is written in some ways for a very similar purpose, but the book of Romans was written as a doctrinal polemic. It's just kind of a nice, well-thought-out well-developed argument. But the book of Galatians is a passionate expression from Paul as, he, as he's almost overflowing with his frustration for what he sees the enemy doing in the lives of the Christians there in those churches. And so he calls them, he says, I can't believe that so soon you've fallen into this. He says, oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, will you be made perfect in the flesh? He's, he's passionate in this letter. And so it's not organized as a neat doctrinal statement, as most of the books of the Bible aren't, but rather it is the overflowing of the heart of one who cares about them. And so he introduces himself as Paul, an apostle. The word apostle just means someone who is sent. And in the Bible, there are two different uses of apostle. There's an apostle in a general sense of somebody who's sent out, like we would call a missionary. But also, there are apostles in a specific sense where originally it referred to the 12 or really the 11 because, because uh, Judas kind of eliminated himself. 
there in, in the book of Acts, prior to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 1, they decided to draw straws and they picked Matthias to take the place of Judas. But most people believe that in that sense, Paul probably really became the 12th apostle. I don't know for sure. When we get to heaven and they have the names of the 12 apostles, we'll find out if Paul's one of them. But Paul was appealing to an apostolic authority here. It was not in the sense of, well, there are a bunch of apostles, as other places, Barnabas and others are called apostles as well. But this is an apostle in, a, in an official sense. An apostle had to be personally commissioned by Jesus Christ in order to be an apostle. Paul's was very unique in that it happened after Jesus had died and ascended into heaven. When Jesus addressed him and spoke to him, there as he was on his way to persecute Christians. But Paul said, I don't take second place to anyone else. They're an apostle, I'm an apostle. I received my pedigree from Jesus himself. And so he's appealing to that and saying, look, if, if you think I'm not legitimate, you don't understand something. I am an apostle, and I'm not an apostle from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So he establishes his qualifications to address them on these issues. And he says, I know who I am, not because people tell me, but because God himself has addressed me. Now, for each of us, God has a calling on each of our lives. There are things that he wants to do in us, through us, for us. And I believe that we all have that opportunity to receive our commission from him. We don't need a man-made tribunal in order to say, okay, poof, you are a teacher, you're a pastor, you're a helper, you're an elder, you're a deacon or a deaconess or whatever. We don't need that. We all better realize, not that people called us to do what we're doing, but we need to understand and have that sense that God himself, Jesus Christ, and God the Father, together anointing us to do what we are doing. I hate to shatter your image, but the position that you may be in in terms of ministry, oh, people have said, yeah, yeah, you ought to do it. But it may just be because they want somebody to do it. And you can't assume that because someone's recruiting you to do something, therefore, yeah, that's, that's God. It's important for each of us to maintain that personal connection with the Lord so that we know who we are before him. Now, we need the body. He's not saying, I'm independent of everyone. We see his intimate connection with the church and his respect for various leaders within the church. And yet, he says, first and foremost, I take my orders from God. I listen to him. And if no one else talks to me, and we'll see in later weeks, as here in these first two chapters, he establishes who he is and how he got there. He had a strong sense that, you know, what I have, I've received of the Lord. That which I am and that which he has called me to, it may be confirmed by others, but I know where it comes from, and it comes from him. Now as he talks, and he talks about all the brethren who are with him, and that's why it's thought that he's on one of his missionary journeys, because he always, in the later missionary journeys, took a lot of people with him. But he, he describes here what the basic gospel is, and this is where we need to start, really. The gospel, the good news, basically, is what it means. And the gospel is what he lays out here. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And in verse 1, Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. This is what we call the gospel. 
the good news that Jesus Christ came. He was God. He took on flesh. He lived a life. He offered himself as a sacrifice. He died for us. All we like sheep, Isaiah said, has gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This substitutionary atonement, it's called theologically. All that means is you deserve to die because of your sin. And he died for you. And he rose from the dead justifying you because now he could declare, look, I've conquered death. It worked. And the gospel, the fact that Jesus died for us, the fact that he rose from the dead proving that it worked, that's the basis on which we live. And he did it all for us. We don't share in it. It's not that, you know, he says, look, help me out here. I'll do this. I'll die and rise from the dead. But you need to do this in order for, so that together we can work together to accomplish your salvation. So what you need to do is you need to be circumcised. You need to observe the Jewish law. You need to keep the Sabbath. And between my death and your obedience, we're covered. It's not it at all. That would be bad news because we can't do it. There are people today who are related in some ways to some of what was happening in Galatia because they teach that if you don't keep the Sabbath, that therefore you can't be a Christian. In fact, they believe that going to church on Sunday, many of them believe that coming to church on Sunday is actually taking the mark of the beast, that it will damn you for eternity. But Paul over in Colossians deals with this and says, don't let anybody judge you according to Sabbaths. You don't have to look at it that way. What they're doing is they're taking something that was given specifically to the Jewish people at a specific period of history, and they're saying, we need to do that. We need to be today's Israel. But the problem, they don't keep the Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath wasn't just going to church on Saturday. In fact, that wasn't a major element. The laws of the Sabbath weren't about what day you worship. They worshiped every day as we should and as we do. The law of the Sabbath was you don't do anything on the Sabbath. So really, if we had church on the Sabbath and I was trying to keep the Sabbath, I couldn't work. What would you do? Couldn't have worship leaders? But also you'd be forbidden to turn the lights on, run the electricity, because that's forbidden by the Sabbath. You couldn't drive your car. You'd have to walk here. But then if you live close enough, you could walk. But if you walk too far on the Sabbath, you violated the Sabbath. See, when we take on the law, we're already doomed. We've already come short. But he has good news for us. The good news is Jesus did it. And it's his will involved in our lives as we understand the work of the gospel, as we, by faith, receive what he has done for us. We realize we're covered. We realize that he has done it all. Like the old song says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. It's true. And so Paul is just going, look, we need to start at the beginning. And the beginning was the cross of Jesus Christ, where your sins were nailed, where my sins were nailed. And Jesus rose from the dead, proving that the cross worked, proving that the sacrifice was acceptable. And again, he would see, the Father would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Isaiah says, for by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, 
for he will bear their iniquities. It's done. The good news is you don't have to follow the rules. The good news is you don't have to obey the law. The good news is you're free. He did it. He paid the price, and he set you free. And you go, "Uh uh-oh, wait a minute. Now what is this? Now you're going to tell us we can just do whatever we want? Yeah. Yeah. But what I'm telling you is if you understand what he has done for you, you're not going to go do stupid things. You're not going to go do self-destructive things. God will work within your heart by his spirit, and we'll see that as we go through the book of Galatians, whereby it's not your job to be a good Christian. It's not your job to do the right thing. It's not your burden to conform to rules, man-made, artificial standards. Your job is to understand that he did it that he took care of it, and just to receive what he has done in our lives. And then the changes that happen as we understand, wow, I'm, I'm free, I'm saved. And as I realize that that freedom and that salvation is connected to his will, according to the will of our God and Father, he sets us free. He declares, you don't need to follow some man's rules. Oh, God, we are so oriented toward that, and so often we feel so burdened. It may be part of, honestly, on last Sunday, as I got up at 6.30 in the morning, Hawaii time, to fire up the internet and, and, and watch church, a part of it is that, you know, I really miss home. I really miss this church and you people, and I was anxious to hear what God had given Bob to share. But probably a part of it, to be honest with you, is that all my life I've gone to church on Sunday. Actually, after the service was over, we went to another church. Now, is there something wrong with going to church? Would God have been displeased if I had said, I'll watch Bob on the reruns in a few hours? It's going to stream all week. And yet there's something within me that wanted to do it, but there's also something within me that made me feel like I ought to do it. And that's the bad side of me. That's the religious side of me. That's the the me that I want to die to because it's just not necessary. You know, if you decide next week not to come to church, you're going to hell. No, you're not. (laughs) Do you realize that God's not going to be bummed at you? That God's not going to love you less? See, The fact that he has done it means there isn't anything that you can do this week that's going to cause him to love you less. There also isn't anything that you can do this week that will cause him to love you more. He loves you supremely by his will, by his sacrifice. It's about him. Be freed up from the notion that, oh, I need to be good. I don't want to let God down. So, So often you hear people talk about, oh, how it must break the heart of the Lord when we do this or this or this. Manipulating people as the way that people tend to manipulate people with guilt. You know what? To be honest with you, and if you catch me saying that, stop me. Nothing you do breaks the heart of the Lord. Oh, I'm sure that he experiences some sort of regrets as he sees us hurting ourselves, but he's a strong God. You don't injure him. He doesn't, when you decide to to cheat on your taxes, though that is going to hurt you and it hurts your witness and, and it's wrong, yet God doesn't, Jesus doesn't feel one more lash across his back because you did it. 
And you know what else? Because he knows you and he's known you from way before you existed, chosen before the foundation of the world, he knew you were going to cheat on your taxes. I see some of you shrinking down in your seats. <laughs> the gospel, the good news is no matter how much you mess up, he loves you completely. He took care of your salvation. And nothing you can do will cause you to, to fall from him unless, and there are situations where people just deliberately choose to, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. It's called apostasy. But it's not going to be that one time, oh, the speed limit's 60, and you're going, whoop, 65, 67, 68, boom, there goes your salvation. You just stepped across the line. He knew you were going to drive crazy. And he loves you so much that if you keep driving crazy, you may get to see him sooner. <laughs> but he doesn't look at you and go, boy, did she disappoint me today. He already knew you did it. He saw it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He saw us at our worst. How many people would ever get married if they saw their fiancé at their worst before they ever got married? You know, we all show our best face before we're married. After we're married, we start to gradually let down our hair and other things. And eventually, there comes a day when it's like, wow, I had, I had no idea. <laughs> and so, sometimes we impute that to God. And we believe somehow that, that God can look at us and be surprised or disappointed or crushed. Or that God would think, why did I ever die for that loser? He knew you at your worst. He knows things about you that you've forgotten. And he still loves you completely. He did it all. Good news. The gospel. Now, Paul gives a greeting here. Wow, it's getting late and we still have communion. But uh, I think the center of the whole thing is found in verse 3, really. Because... In this little greeting that he used a lot, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. The grace that he bestows on us, the peace that he gives us as a result of that grace. Now, there are some words that you just can't define them to completely get them. One of those is in Hebrew, the word that we usually translate peace, and it's the word shalom. Shalom doesn't just mean peace. That's maybe a good word for it, but shalom means so much more. It's referring to all blessings, all goodness, everything, all of the aspirations that God has for you. May you be blessed. May you experience the sense that he is holding you, that he's carrying you, that he paid it all. That's the word shalom in the Old Testament. The word in the New Testament that's the equivalent really is the word charis or grace, the word that's used here for grace. It, you know, we can define grace and, you know, from when you're a little kid in Sunday school, you learn that grace is unmerited favor. Great, mercy is God not doing what we deserve. Grace is giving us things we don't deserve. And that sounds really good, but the word charis means so much more than that. It's a word that refers, like shalom, to everything good that there is, to all blessing, to all love, to all acceptance, to all security. It's being held. In, in Hawaiian, the word aloha is the same thing. It doesn't just mean hello and goodbye. It means, oh, all blessing, all goodness, all love, all acceptance. Now, the word charis in the Greek 
It's translated here grace. There's another word, an English word, that comes via Greek to Latin to English, and it's the word caress. To touch affectionately, to hold securely, to just stroke and to allow someone to know that they're okay. It's what you do to a little baby or to someone that you love, to just let them know your presence is there. And Paul is saying, as a result of what he has done, as a result of the good news of the gospel, because of your putting your faith in God, he pours his caress on you. And as a result, you lie there peacefully. You enjoy and appreciate everything that is designed into life. Lighten up, he says. Relax, it's okay, he did it all. Grace and peace to you. And as a result, he says, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's the one who did it for us, the one who caresses us, to whom all the glory belongs. And that's why it's not of us. That's why Paul said in Ephesians, it's not of works. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So it's not about me getting glory. If I could make myself good, I would take the glory. If I could, was capable of really being a good Christian, I'd take glory. People would give me glory. We have to even be careful because when people see God working through us, sometimes they start to give the glory to us. And it's important for us to, to understand and to reflect and to communicate that's not what it's about. It's not about my glory. It's about his glory. Last Sunday, as Bob shared, and if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to get the message on uh, CD or DVD or tape or whatever. And he talked about the change in the Apostle Peter's life when he understood that he was loved by Jesus and accepted by Jesus and restored by Jesus. In the same way, I believe that when we understand the gospel, if we really get it, we'll be freed up and released to just accept his caress, his caress, and at the same time, enjoy that peace that passes understanding, that sense that, wow, you mean, it's not me hanging on to him, it's him hanging on to me. It's not that if I can follow all the rules and look right and act right and talk right that somehow maybe I'll be accepted by God, but it's, no, he accepted you before he ever did anything. And he really, the only reason he cares that you obey him ultimately is because he knows that's best for you. That's his way of caressing you. Now, if you just decide to disobey him all the time, you're not going to feel that peace. You're not going to feel that love and that grace. You're not going to be walking by faith. But that's what Paul explains in the rest of this book, that there's a walk of faith, a walk of the Spirit that's the way we're truly designed to live. And that's what he wants to communicate. Jesus died for you. He wanted to do it. He rose from the dead. It's not about you. It's about accepting his love, accepting his caress, his grace, allowing peace to rule in your heart, and then just give the glory to him. He's doing all the work. We don't need to work. Well, if you want to eat, you might need to work, but not in terms of our salvation, not in terms of being a better Christian. It's not the hours that we log in prayer. It's not the time that we commit to study. As, as much of a blessing as that is, when you understand his grace, what happens is there you are lying in his arms, safe and secure, and you're like, Jesus, I, I want to talk to you. Jesus, I want you to talk to me. And you open your Bible and you go, wow, he's talking to me. 
It's not okay. Get it open. You know, a chapter a day keeps the devil away. No. When you're close to him, you'll know it because you'll want to talk to him. You'll want to obey him. And it won't seem like a burden at all. It'll be you resting in the truth of the good news. The good news that he did it all. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank you for the good news. The gospel and all that you've done for us. God, if there are people here today that haven't accepted the good news. Either they don't know you and haven't accepted you, or maybe they've allowed the enemy to come in with a burden. Law, rules, regulations, judgments that are driving their life so hard that they can't hear your still small voice. Lord, help them to accept your grace today. Help us all to understand it's just you. The good news is we don't have to do anything. We want your will, and it was your will that you would do it for us. And God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to share together in the Lord's Supper. It's a great time, given this scripture, to do so. I'm sorry for keeping you late. I just, I, I probably should have covered less verses, but um, this is really important stuff, and I hope you have a sense of how important it is. But important for us always is to remember the gospel, the sacrifice that he made for us, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. And if communion is something new to you, or maybe you come from a tradition where it's some sort of weird, mystical, whatever, let me lay it out for you. It's really simple. Jesus said, eat the bread, drink the cup. It'll, it'll remind you of what I did for you, my sacrifice for you. Now, there may be people today, we're talking about the gospel, there may be people in here who have never accepted Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to have you get up and walk down and play 100 verses of just as I am. I'm going to tell you something that you can do really personal, just between you and the Lord. When this stuff comes around, when the bread comes to you and you hold it in your hand, when the, the juice comes to you and you're holding that cup in your hand, and we'll all hang on to both of them until we've all received and we partake together. When you, if you want to get right with God, if you want to receive his grace by faith, then as you receive that emblem of his body and of his blood, just between you and the Lord, say, God, I'm receiving you right now. I want you to come into my life. I want to receive your provision. I've been trying to take care of it. I, I, I want you to take care of it now. And if you partake of that by faith, you're doing something that's called being born again. You're getting a fresh start. And if you've never taken communion before, you've taken it 100 times, but you've never received Jesus, do it while you're taking the elements that he said to do in remembrance of him. Be a great way to get your life started for the rest of us. Those of us who are walking with the Lord have been Christians for a long time. I think for every one of us, there are elements of our life that smack more of legalism than they do of grace, where the gospel has been crowded out by our following the rules. And I want to encourage you as I exhort myself, as we partake, hey, let's remember, it's the gospel, it's good news, it's all about him, he did it. I don't have to meet anyone else's expectations. I don't have to, it's not signing up for a set of rules. It's not taking on a burden on myself, Lord. It's receiving you in a way that I want you to lift the burden. Feel his touch. Feel his caress, his grace 
Allow him to give you peace as you partake in communion. And it'll be what it's designed to be. A, a snuggling up to our Lord. The one who loves us so much that he died for us. The one who's so powerful that he rose for us. So let's just spend some time in worship now as the men come up and pass out the elements as they come to you. Hang on to them until we've all received and then we'll partake together. Yeah. 
Lord, it is the desire of our heart to be holy. The problem is we've tried. And we try to be holy and we end up just full of holes. God, we need that work of your grace, your good news in our lives. And we receive that from you now. And we acknowledge it's, it's not about people, it's about you and what you've done for us. And so we receive that which you've done for us, that work that you did on the cross. We receive it now as we receive these elements. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all partake together.